In the reading of God's word today, we return to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, as we see Paul offering words to lift their eyes to the grandeur of the Lord Jesus Christ that points to the hope to which they have been called. Hear now the word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Christ Church family and guests. We welcome you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My name is Paul Lawler. I have the honor of serving as the lead pastor here at Christ Church, and we welcome you. And as we do, I need to say a brief word of housekeeping before we dive into the teaching on our text this morning. Uh, our disaffiliation vote as a United Methodist Church will take place on Sunday, October 30th at 9.45 a.m. in Seabrook Hall. And as I share this with you, I want to remind you that disaffiliation is not disaffiliation unto disaffiliation's sake. Disaffiliation is unto something. And if you read uh, Dr. Maxie Dunham's letter to the congregation this week, you have gleaned more understanding around that. And for the sake of time, uh, I, that's, uh, I'll tie a bow on that for now, and we'll come back to, to that later. But I want to invite you uh, to turn your eyes toward the text. And if you've got a Bible with you, it would be advantageous to go ahead and open it to Ephesians 1 and 2 and have that on ready uh, because there's a section we're going to ask that we uh, look together uh, at uh, the text here in just a moment. So let me once again pray. I'm going to pray with my eyes open. That is legal, by the way, uh, but I'm just going to pray in this way. Lord, we pray that in my weakness, our weakness that you would demonstrate your glory and your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, loved ones, as we dive into this this morning, I want to remind you of who wrote this text. It was the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. I believe that, but I also want to remind you that Paul has a perspective that most human beings don't, and here it is. When you read the testimony and life of Paul, you may remember he was called up into the third heaven at one point in his life. And, and let's, let me remind you of what the third heaven refers to. In ancient times, 
uh, people understood the heavens in this way. That is, the heavens being like the atmosphere that we're gathered in right here. That would be called the first heaven. Second heaven is the solar system. And then the third heaven would be a reference to the heavenly realm where God and Christ sit on the throne reigning over all of the created order. And so as we validate that, it's important that in light of what I'm about to say that you understand what Paul means when he says that he want, there was a time in his life when he's called up to the third heaven. Now, now, remember that the Lord instructed Paul that there were certain things that he had seen and grown to understand that he was not to write about. You may also remember Paul had a thorn in the flesh that the Lord allowed and didn't deliver him from so that Paul would remain dependent upon the Lord. He wouldn't get prideful because he had seen these deep revelations of the reality of God in Christ. And again, instructed not to write about everything that he had seen or everything that he knows. Now, in light of that, what I want you to be mindful of in light of what we have, Jackie read, what we're going to look at this morning is this. The Apostle Paul is uniquely qualified to share what he's sharing with us this morning. And he begins by declaring that he's praying for the church, for the body of Christ. And he's praying for things that only God can do. And, and what he begins, he begins by describing what God wants the body of Christ to know. Church at Ephesus, church in Memphis. Here we are. And he begins by declaring that you need a revelation from the Holy Spirit, from the third person of the Trinity, a revealing of God, if you will. And note that he's praying these things. And that tells us something in this chapter because he says as he's praying these things, that infers that only God can do what he's praying for the church to experience. And so he begins by saying, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give the body of Christ, may give you a spirit or the spirit of wisdom and a revelation of the knowledge of him. And what Paul is making clear is this, information is not enough. We need information, but what he's declaring is that we need the revealing of God in our lives. The revealing of God, yes, through Scripture, but accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, in which he declares here, describes him as the spirit of wisdom. Let's pause for a moment and define the word wisdom. Wisdom is the correct application of knowledge. Wisdom is the correct application and integration of revelation. And Paul is declaring that he is praying that the Spirit of God will do a work under the headship of Jesus Christ in the church. You need a revelation from the Holy Spirit. This is what God wants you to know. But in addition to that, God wants you to know that you need your heart eyes enlightened. Look at the text with me. And again, remember, this is connected to prayer. Paul's praying that God would do this because this can't be done in natural strength. And so he writes these words, I'm praying that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. We'll get to that in a moment. But let me say this before we say what I'm going to say next. Bear with me. Here it is. When you see the word know and knowledge in verses 17 and 18, this is a unique Greek word. It's epignosis, epignosis, and it literally means a divine knowledge of God. 
It's like a knowledge that gets into your heart and into your experience. It's not merely cerebral. It affects your being. And so Paul is praying that the spirit of wisdom is going to do this work in the body of Christ and that our eyes, our heart eyes, would be enlightened in a way that our heart eyes are awakened and the reality of God gets into our experience. His name was Billy. And Billy was a teenager in a youth group that I led years ago. He's a young intellectual, really bright kid, and yet he was also a clown. He, he cut up all the time. I, I'm sure that Christ Church Memphis has never had a student that was a clown, but I, I've been in places where there was a clown in the student ministry, and it wouldn't matter. We could be in the middle of teaching a Bible study, a really serious moment, and Billy is making noises with his armpit to make the girls laugh in the youth group. Or Billy's doing something else that's just obnoxious or off the wall at the most odd times. Friday night, 10 o'clock, my phone rings. And when I answer it, it's Billy. Paul, can you come? Can you come to my house? I said, sure, Billy, I'm getting my calendar out. He says, no, Paul, can you, can you come now? I could hear panic in his voice. I said, yes, Billy, I'll be right there. Hung up the phone and drove to his home. And as I get out of the car, his father is handcuffed and they are lowering him into the back of a police cruiser. And I walk in the house and his mother has been beaten. And suddenly I understand why Billy is a clown. Because all of those moments of being obnoxious and expressing awkward humor, his heart is crying out, does anybody love me? Is anybody going to notice me? Do I matter to anybody? And that church where we were serving, word got out of what was going on in Billy's life and Billy's family. Billy's family never darkened the door of a church. Billy had no church background. He had been invited to that student group because another student reached out to him. And Billy, who was a, kind of a young, budding intellectual, had no faith in God, no faith in Jesus, no orientation around Christianity. And yet I watched that church begin to pray for Billy. Billy. They began to pray. They began to go to war for this young man and his family. Three months later, my phone rings again on a Sunday afternoon. And it's Billy. He says, Paul, can we talk? I said, sure. He says, I'm at the church. Could you come down here? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll be right there. I, I hung up the phone. I, the church in that town was just a few blocks away. And I walked down to the church. Couldn't find Billy anywhere in the church. Wasn't in the youth center. Or, and so I just kept looking around. And I found him. He's in the sanctuary, sitting alone. And I sit down next to him. And I said, what's up, Billy? He looks at me and he says, Paul, I've seen him. I said, you've seen who? He says, I've seen Jesus. Now, you've got to remember, Billy can be a clown, and I'm like, 
Billy, I've never seen Jesus. That's a good one. What do you mean by that? You've seen Jesus. And this is what he said to me. No, Paul, don't you understand? It's, it was in that hymn we sang this morning, that song we sang. And he pulled an old Cokesbury hymnal out and thumbed to a page and pointed at this song. And he said, read those words, read them, read them out loud like I'd never heard them before. And I Open this and realize it's all brand new to him. And I read these words. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. And then when I finished reading the words out loud, I looked at Billy and he said these words. Don't you get it, Paul? I haven't seen him with my eyes. I've seen him with my heart. Don't you understand? He's trying to explain it to me like I'm not even a Christian. You see, I'm in full-time ministry and he's going, no, he's real, Paul. You've got to understand. Like something has happened to me. And loved ones, what we're reading about here, right here, having the eyes of the heart enlightened is exactly what that church family prayed that young man into. It's the very thing that the apostle Paul is describing what do you need to know you need a revelation of the holy spirit and you need a revelation of your heart eyes being awakened but that's not all paul writes in this text he also says that he's praying for the body of christ with christ as the head as we covered last week that we would know the hope to which you you and i that we've been called to notice this what he says in verse 18 having had or having the eyes of your heart enlightened and one of the most important things that we can pay attention to sometimes as christians is this the so that phrases now in my translation that i'm using this morning it just says that you but some of your bibles say so that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you now listen the scripture says in romans 10 that it is not god's desire that anybody perish That's not the heart of God. God wants to draw you to himself in saving power in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul, when we look at the text this morning, it's important that we pause and look at the context. And if you have your Bible with you, look with me at Ephesians 2. Because the context, when he describes in Ephesians 1 the hope to which he's called us, that hope is this. A Christian is filled with hope because God has called us to salvation. And that's what he writes about in the context because it goes on to say this, verse one, chapter two, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Sin has separated us from God. And when you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you're dead to the reality of God. You're dead to wanting to read your Bible. You're dead to wanting to pray. You're dead to wanting to relate to God. You're dead to even desiring to honor God. You're you're dead. One pastor theologian described it this way. He said, when you're apart from God, you're not merely in the doghouse. You're dead. What the scripture says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now listen closely, church. This gets real Wesleyan. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. John Wesley, because he studied the Bible and he studied the patristics, this is why John Wesley required every Methodist Christian when they were entering a society to answer this question. Do you know what it is? You might remember this from Vision Night. 
Do you desire to flee the coming wrath and be saved from your sins? And the reason Wesley asked this question is because not only was the Church of England, Anglican Church, it was baptized in death orthodoxy. She was also baptized in rationalism. And rationalism postured many in the church to elevate their thinking over the revelation of God. And it goes back to as gold as the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? And he goes on to write, but, but God... But God, being rich in mercy, remember, mercy is when we do not get what we deserve. And being God, being rich in mercy, out of, because of his great love which with he, he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, that in, when a man or woman is in Christ, they're made alive together with Christ, it's by grace you are saved. You don't earn this. Your good doesn't outweigh your bad that you turn to Christ in surrender, and this is what's called, what we call the good news, where we are saved from God's judgment and wrath, and we are delivered into new life in Christ to know the hope to which he has called you because having your heart eyes awakened like young Billy experienced so that you would know this hope that you've been birthed into a new kingdom you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and planted into the kingdom of light and the apostle paul is saying i pray that the church the body of christ is awake to this truth but that's not all and he writes to know what the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints is now listen church i want to validate something that can sound like just religious jargon can it not I mean, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know the hope to which he's called you, that salvation in, person, in the person of Jesus Christ. But notice it's also unto this, knowing, experiencing the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now church, we're gonna go to Home Depot for a moment. Just bear with me. So obviously I'm holding a rope and I need um, Dr. Chris Carter. Would you, I'm gonna throw this out here. Let me explain, this is undignified. I, again, as I've often said to you, at least Pastor Paul's self-aware, okay? So here we go, I'm gonna kinda of toss this out and we'll try to get it untangled if we can, real quickly. And so uh, I saw Francis Chan do this a number of years ago. And so just invite you to think with me as I try to pass this IQ test that I am uh, engaged in in this moment and may or may not be winning. So, um, here we go. All right. If somebody wants to play some Jeopardy music, that would might be appropriate for a moment. Okay. All right, no, I was, I was teasing. Let's, all right. Here's what I want you to picture. The scripture says life is a vapor. Billy Graham was asked this question, other than salvation, what's the most important thing that you would want to impart to humanity that they would understand? Here's what, here was his answer. He said this, brevity of life. Brevity of life. Life is a vapor. And I know some of you in this room, you're old enough to go, gosh, it seems like just yesterday. Brevity of life. This little blue tape on the end, this represents the brevity of your life. This rope to my left 
This is eternity. But you see, many of us, including Christians, you only think about this. You think about this life. When there's so much revelation where God not only invites us, but even saints like the Apostle Paul are praying that we will have a revelation of the reality of eternity. All of us, one day, will face our certain impending death that is not going to be an option in our lives. And Paul writes these words that, Christian, have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know the hope to which he's called you. He covers that in chapter 2, the reality of our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. But also he's praying that we would have the kind of revelation where we understand this glorious inheritance. If you want to stretch this rope out somewhere, Chris, just so, because eternity is forever. Hard to comprehend, all right? But, but again, to comprehend the brevity of our lives and the reality of eternity that goes on forever and ever. And be mindful that the scripture has much to say about this. The scripture describes that one day that for the person whose heart has been enlightened, you are birthed into the person of Jesus Christ. The scripture describes that you in the heavenly realm one day in eternity will know the peace of God like you've never known before. You will be completely, if you're in Christ, unencumbered by sin. You will be more you than you've ever been in the full presence of your creator because sin diminishes human flourishing. People that you will relate to and you know in heaven, in eternity, will be more them than they've ever been. You will enjoy them like you've never enjoyed being with people before because there's no sin, there's no paranoia, there's no second thoughts, there's nothing impure. It's just pure, peaceful relationships in harmony with the one who created the heavens and the earth. In, in eternity, which, which Paul here is praying that, that we would have a revelation of the riches of this glorious inheritance that we are to the Lord in Christ and we also experience in Christ. Think about what heaven is also like when the scriptures, we see that worship is taking place there. Uh, there are three places in Scripture where we just get to peak in heaven. The book of Ezekiel, Isaiah 6, Revelation 3. And in all three instances, we see that worship is taking place in heaven. A.W. Tozer once said this, If you don't enjoy worship, you won't enjoy heaven. But remember, the worship is white hot in affection because you're in presence. You're in the presence of your Creator. So let me ask you a question. Two of those three examples, when we look into heaven, we see that the cherubim and seraphim are exalting God with this song. And it goes like this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Blessed is he who was and is and is to come. I blend those two texts. Now here's my question. If we look in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6 and we see this worship going on with this worship song, holy, 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 and then a thousand years later we look in Revelation 3 and the same thing is happening, here's a question for us. How does that not get boring? Same song. Huh. Let's answer the question. The scripture teaches us 
that God inhabits the praises of Israel. That, what that tells us, what that infers, is that as God is adored, as he's worshipped, as he's magnified, we get in synergy on earth with what's taking place in heaven. Lord, a kingdom come, will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we're in synergy with what's happening in heaven, we experience a greater revelation of God. Why would we see as there's a throne adoring God in heaven, why are they not getting bored? Well, here it is. He's in infinite God. Paul even accentuates that in verse 19 when he says, speaks of his immeasurable greatness. As God is being adored, what's happening is cherubim, seraphim, those around the throne are experiencing a greater revelation of an infinite God. And they are satisfied. And the more they are satisfied in the presence of an infinite God who is revealing his light and life to them, the more they want of his presence and his revelation. It's reciprocal. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be adored. He is the head of the church. Chris, you can let go now. God bless you. Thank you so much. And so we are mindful that as we see this reality of life is short, eternity is long, we see the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. By the way, in heaven, you do know we're not going to float around on clouds. When you read the parables of Jesus, you recognize that many of those parables end with a commissioning that you will be given responsibility in heaven. In fact, the Bible even says that you have the opportunity to reign with the person of Jesus Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. And loved ones, Paul here prays, one who has been to the third heaven is praying that the body of Christ would have not only the revelation of hearts being enlightened, but that we may know what is the hope to which he's called us in salvation in Christ and the riches of the glory that comes in eternity. No big deal. And then thirdly, Paul writes that he's praying for the body of Christ to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, look at this verse with me, verse 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Now, what that means is there is no mathematical calculation that can sum up the power of God. It's immeasurable, the immeasurable greatness of our God. And then notice in the text, it says this, it gets personal for you. It's toward us who believe. Wrap your head around that. Measurable power toward us who believe, and then there are two substantive examples. According to the working of his great might that he worked, when in Christ he raised him from the dead. And then also seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. And what the Apostle Paul is teaching the church is this, that not only is there a measurable power available toward you as the body of Christ, for you, those who believe, but it's resurrection power and it's ascension power. It's resurrection power, it's power that's rooted in the reality that Jesus is on the throne at the right hand of God. And because he's reigning, you have access. In fact, Paul goes on to write, I'm going to throw this in for free because I'm charging a lot for this. Here it is. You're even seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, that's what Paul writes in chapter 2. Wrap your head around this. As your life, if you're born into the kingdom, Christ is in you, you are in Christ. And what that means, there is a sense, your access is so radiant, you're in a sense in two places at the same time. 
You're on earth, but you're in Christ. Where is Christ? Christ seated in heaven. Mystery, but wrap your heart around the reality. And so we see this immeasurable greatness of his power rooted in both his resurrection and his ascension. Now, remember, this is basic. This is 101. Nine-year-old here. I know you can understand this, but a resurrection is this. A dead person comes to life. And so what this means and what Paul is seeking to communicate to the body of Christ is this. Resurrection power is believing that God can save a family member, a co-worker, friends, no matter how far they may seem from God. But remember, the body is praying unto these things. That's what happened in Billy's life. That's what Paul is doing right here. Resurrection power is believing that God can give me hope in the midst of navigating debilitating depression. Resurrection power is believing God can save a loveless marriage that has been wounded by an affair. Resurrection power is believing God can deliver a person from an addiction. Resurrection power is believing that God will one day raise me from the grave. That's resurrection power. And Paul is declaring, church, this resurrection power is available to the body of Christ, toward us who believe. But also, there's ascension power that he is declaring here. Ascension power is believing Jesus is ruling supreme over all reality on the throne, the right hand of the Father. Ascension power is believing Jesus is bigger than your greatest demons or your darkest nightmare. Ascension power is recognizing I do not have to be afraid of some earthly circumstance because my God reigns. His name was Randy. Randy was homeless. And people in the church I served invited him to begin attending our worship services. They would begin, they would pick Randy up under a bridge and just bring him to church, make sure he had a tent, make sure he had food, just making sure he was taken care of. And he began worshiping with our church family. Now, Randy was a little different. Randy um, was kind of frozen in the 1960s. Bell-bottom jeans, T-shirt, necklace, hair, uh, down on his shoulders, used a lot of language from the 60s. I know it's kind of, I mean, some of you, anyway, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, groovy, gnarly, I mean, words like that. And, and Randy was one of those, if you, was kind of on a delay, and that is, uh, if you told, like, shared something humorous from the pulpit, and people kind of chuckled, Randy was always on a five to seven second delay. And when he would get it, he just laughed so loud and kind of obnoxiously, but everybody loved Randy. Randy, uh, Randy would interrupt conversations at the most inopportune time. You would be talking to people in a social circle before or after church, and Randy would just come and just interrupt and just start talking. It just, he kind of lacked social skills, but the people in the church loved him. So one Sunday, we're getting ready to begin the worship service, a part of our worship gathering. The worship team's already playing the opening song, and I'm in conversation with a group of people. Randy comes up. He starts tugging at my shoulder. Pastor Paul, Pastor Paul. I said, yeah, Randy. Can I talk to you? I said, well, let me, let me finish up right here, okay? And he says, I, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come. So I finished my conversation. Randy went over to the corner of the room, and when I turn, these words dropped into my spirit. The least of these, the least of these. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it unto me. The least of these, the least of these. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it 
unto me. And by the time I got over into the corner with Randy and I looked Randy in the eyes, I no longer had a sense that I was looking at Randy. I had the sense that I was looking into the eyes of Jesus. And Randy looks at me and he says this, Pastor Paul, do you not know that the power, immeasurable power of God dwells in you? And he desires to dwell in this body and pour himself out, not only here, but in this city. Do you believe him? That's all. And he bebopped off. Christ Church, do you not know that the immeasurable power of God is available to you? Resurrection power, ascension power, power in prayer, power that comes through surrender to the head, Jesus Christ, he's worthy of your surrender. So fight for your heart. Fight for your heart in prayer. Fight for your heart by opening the scripture and letting God speak to you. Fight for your heart, church, for God to enlighten your heart. Fight for your heart to grow in grace in Christ. Fight for your heart for the sake of surrendering to the head because he's worthy of our surrender. Fight for your heart that the Spirit of God would fill your life. Fight for your heart, Christ Church. In the name of the Father who loves you, in the name of Jesus who bled and died, took your sin upon himself there so that God could demonstrate his mercy towards you, deliver you from wrath and judgment, and express his love and his mercy over you and draw you to himself. In the name of the Holy Spirit, who makes this work real in our hearts and lives. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Now God, just as the Apostle Paul prayed for these things we pray. God, you know how to customize your voice individually and we pray do the tailoring work all over this sanctuary and those that are listening online. Speak to our hearts. Some of us have wondered from you, God. And we pray, Lord, for the work of your grace, the loving conviction of the Holy Spirit, that draws us back to you. Thank you that you're merciful. We don't get what we deserve in Christ. Thank you for your mercy. I pray, Lord, in this sanctuary that your mercies, the newness of them, would be experienced. Epignosis, God. I pray for an abounding of your grace here. Grace is a, a gift we haven't earned. Thank you that you're gracious. But I pray that your grace would be tailored for every need in this worship space, O oh God. Draw to Jesus, the head, so that we might be your body. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.